Hello and welcome to Thinking with Opera, a new series of podcasts produced as part of the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. Begun during lockdown, these discussions and conversations explore opera and its component parts in the light of the wider world of culture and ideas. Dominic Gray. I'm Director of Projects at Opera North in Leeds and I'm here today with Professor Griselda Pollock to talk about life, art and opera. Griselda Pollock is Professor of Social and Critical Histories of Art at the University of Leeds. She is Director of the University's Centre for Cultural Analysis, Theory and History, uh, known here as CentreCath. And uh, significantly this year, Griselda was awarded the Norwegian government's very prestigious Holberg Prize uh, for her internationally recognised contribution to research and understanding. Uh, Professor Pollock's books include, uh, significantly very important when it, when it uh, emerged onto the scene, the book Old Mistresses, Women, Art and Ideology, back in the early 80s. Um, in the end of the 90s, she again uh, produced a significant uh, intervention into uh, art history with Differencing the Canon, Feminism and the Histories of Art. And then most recently, uh, in 2018, she published her book, Charlotte uh, Salomon and the Theory of Memory. Uh, it's been one of my huge pleasures over the time that I've been at Opera North uh, to work with Griselda and the Centre Cath uh, on a range of projects, seminars, conferences, um, usually taken, uh, uh, inspired by themes taken from opera, uh, operas that Opera North has been performing at that time, but expanding out from those starting points to include uh, the visual arts, cultural theory, film uh, and psychoanalysis. Um, interestingly, despite the range and eclecticism of the projects that we've, that we've done together, we always seem to return to the question of violence and how violence, and often sexual violence, is represented. Uh, in different art forms, uh, how it's thought about and how it's performed and what the implications are of performing acts of violence in theatre or opera. Um, Griselda, there's, there's a quote from the actor William H. Macy uh, where he's talking about violence in film and he says, it started with The Godfather, this operatic violence. I wondered what you thought about that phrase, operatic violence. Hello Dom and Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this wonderful project of keeping opera thinking alive in our present circumstances. I want to respond to your question in a slightly roundabout way, if you'll allow me, because Macy seems to be blaming opera for the kind of violence, the extreme, almost bloody violence that we saw in that trilogy of Godfather films. Mm. And I want to unpick this idea of violence by going round the houses in a slightly different way, looking at different levels. So first of all, I just have to say, I'm not a musicologist, and I'm not a musician, and I'm not a singer. I just come at this, at this as someone who loves visual art, film, cultural studies, and opera. 
So what I do in my approach is to ask what do things mean, what specific art forms, visual, cinematic, literary, music, what are they doing? And I, I also want to see how culture represents the world to us and then who are we when we receive it? So there's a number of things going on there. And I like to find the links between the things that people revere as high culture and therefore think you can't ask those tough questions of and the more widely consumed and loved popular culture which people don't recognize as actually having a conversation across the high and the low and they're never very far apart so I want to kind of play them off against each other. So the place I want to start answering your question and Macy will get us to The Godfather in two seconds but we have to start with the wonderful wonderful comedy Some Like It Hot which some people will remember, where Tony Curtis is a feckless saxophone player, Jack Lemmon is the uh, bass player, and they have to hide from the mob because they witness the St. Valentine's Day massacre between two mob gangs, and they do it by going to drag and joining a women's uh, all-women band and going to entertain rich millionaires in a hotel in Florida. Unfortunately, that hotel turns out to be the chosen destination for the all-American mob get-together, which includes the guys who sh whose massacre the, the people who killed the people, and uh, a character called Little Caesar, who is dressed up as, as almost like a little Mussolini, and the rubric for the getting-together of all the mafia gangs is Friends of Italian Opera. <laughs> I'd forgotten that. So wonderfully ironic. Now, it's not really ironic, actually, because this is the question of this kind of sense of mafia violence in the opera. Now, at the end of Godfather 3, Michael Leone ungraciously attends a, an opera in which his wayward and very uncriminal but very arty son is singing the lead, the Turidu, in Cavalleria Rusticana. Now, during the performance, as we're watching it, a series of uh, murders of Vatican personnel is being carried out by Michael's henchmen. And um, Mascagni's uh, music plays across these falling bodies that interrupt what we watch on the stage. But at the very end, the party leaves the opera, descend the grand staircase, and Mascagni's music comes into play just as a priest tries to kill Michael and actually shoots his beloved daughter. So we have a perfectly operatic ending. A whole group of people on this great stage set of the staircase and the pillars, the men in black jackets, the mother screeching in distress and holding the body, the lifeless body to her. And then Michael picks up the body and rocks with it and finally opens his mouth in this almost two minute long wordless scream before he suddenly howls. But over all this, Coppola played the intermezzo. So you have this unbelievably beautiful music yeah. soothing you as you see this tableau. It's like a, like a Caravaggio. They've rebuilt a 17th century painting, absolutely with the lighting. And then the mm. music follows us until we then slip to Michael sitting in a lonely chair, 
now it's the old, old Michael who is going to fall into sort of literally die in front of us. The hand will drop, the chin will drop, and then he falls off his chair. And we're lulled into this sense of the, sort of the lyrical ending of this terrifying, vicious criminal man yeah. and his yeah. life as he dies. And that's the flashback. So it's a, a, a sort of already there a complicated series of things. This relationship between criminal violence, the opera, the opera stories, and of course in this case Turidu is the one who dies, and in opera usually it's the woman who dies, and that's the one. Now the, f the friends of Italian opera came back to me because, rather tragically, my brother died quite recently, and during the um, eulogy his wife said that he was, amongst many things, a lover of Italian opera. And I thought, Does he, you know, I went to the opera quite often with him, but only Italian opera and what did he like? And it reminded me that my first experience of opera was to be taken shortly after my mother had died by my brother to the Royal Opera House, Covent Garden, to see Tosca, performed by Maria Callas as Tosca and Tito Gobbi as Scarpia. So can you imagine my introduction to opera was like the most wow. Glorious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you don't like opera after having that beginning. Yeah. Um, and obviously, uh, Scarpia is a sort of prototype for Mussolini and for the kind of mafia bosses. But of course, I was totally devastated at the end of the opera. You know, not like the young woman in um, Pretty Woman, who is completely moved to tears by La Traviata's death. I was, I remember coming out thinking, I just watched a man killed yeah. in cold blood, and a woman leap to her death. Yeah. And so I've re held on to that question. Now, I wanted to share my interests in opera with students. And as you know, I've been trying to bring students to Opera North over this. And one of the ones we brought them to was Madame Butterfly. And I'm just finished this little sort of set of anecdotes. It'll come together with this, which was that we Many of them have never been in an opera house, didn't even know that it existed in Leeds, never heard an opera singer. Some had, some were in fact even operatically trained. But they came, and at the midpoint they said, oh, it's so fascinating, the staging, the lighting, the colour. They were, as fine art students, totally into the visuals. And then when we came out at the very end, their hair was all in disarray. Their faces had that flushed look of people who've been moved or even mm. wept and they you know they weren't asking like how can somebody sing like that they were just absolutely transformed by the intensity of the experience they'd been through and that's my question because Madame Butterfly is a very troubling opera all sorts yeah, yeah. of levels and we can talk about it I hope a bit later but what I was interested in was the combination of being there being there for two hours, being there with a visual, whole visual performance, and then in a sense what is carried at the end is this extraordinary thing about the, a sung death, what Catherine Clement yeah, calls yeah. a sung death. And what I think about it is not a matter of saying, okay, vi you know, it's violent because of the plot, but we have to think about those plots, but all these elements that make opera unlike cinema, because in cinema you are a spectator. Your eyes are glued to the screen. You're carried along. But in opera, you are present to a voice producing this, 
to a particular staging that is self-consciously a staging. You're not trying to be deceived into thinking this is real. So there's a whole lot of design and aspects to it. And then you've got um, not only this duration and the presence, but this kind of embodiment. And so mm. I'm fascinated by the notion that we witness in opera and what we witness is what we're going to discuss, but we're not just viewers, we're not just passive consumers, because sound enters you in such an extraordinary way, and it's human sound, it's not surround sound, it's not background sound, it's this unique capacity of these particular voices to embody emotion. Mm -hmm. So I think I'd like to think about this question of violence as kind of, it's very ambivalent and multi-sided. This idea of witnessing or bear, bearing witness it, it's I mean we, we know that op, you know opera was an invented art form in the early 17th century and it was a self-conscious um, or conscious uh, attempt to recreate what the Renaissance thinkers and musicians of the time thought that Greek tragedy might have been like and and with the Greek with the Greeks, there's a strong sense of the audience as witnesses, isn't there? It's the same as the cho the chorus are, are are the witnesses of the events happening. So, I mean, is it part of a is opera therefore part of a I don't know a, a tradition of a cult, a society or a culture or a civilization presenting something to itself? Does that make sense as a question? Yes, it does. I think that's a very very important point because if we think about the classic. Um, tragedy, there are three things that need help. First of all, uh, you have spectators, in a sense you bring the people together so that what we see in the remains when we go to Athens or old, old places of Greece, this notion of a theatre yeah. where you have this community that has to come together and usually at very ritual times, most of the tragedies were performed at the festival of Dionysus in spring, mm -hmm. And this links to um, the idea that the 19th century classicists came up with, which is that all art originates in ritual. Originally, something was done, and that what was done was real sacrifice. Mm. That something was sacrificed, and possibly even um, a young man was sacrificed. So if you think of Pier Paolo Pasolini's wonderful film of Medea, which dramatizes the Greek, uh, sort of the Athenian Greek world, it's actually Corinth, and the world of Medea, where she is the priestess and does, on behalf of society, commit this ritual murder of a young boy whose blood is spread around to mm. bring the crops. So Dionysus arrives out of that long history of the real sacrifice of people mm. afraid of their world and afraid of things so that they have rituals to deal with their fear of the unknown or lack of food. And then you end up finally with this representation. So drama comes from the word dromanon, which dromanon means to have done. And drama mm. involves this sort of sense of, of the deed. But you become, the people don't participate, they now watch. And then these masked characters would come, the gods would come and play out the drama. And then, you, as you say, you have the chorus, which is the interim, the intermediaries. But I think the thing that happens with opera is the gods maybe do, in 
18th century opera swing around on these fantastic machines that we can sometimes see in opera history. But there's a more direct encounter, and the closer we come to modern times, the more intense that being literally there witnessing, rather than be having the mediation of the chorus yeah. saying, now look at the gods say, and people in classical Greek were obliged to come to the theatre because this was, as it were, the ritual of retelling things and teaching them the fury of the gods. Obviously that gets taken up in the court operas, and I want to come back to one, to the original one, Daphne, yeah. if we can have time in, in the course of this yeah. to talk about it, because that does relate to the visual arts and all of that culture at that particular point. Um, but by the time we get to the lovers of Italian opera, as it were, the friends of Italian opera, we've done something very significant, which is that we've shifted from a general sense that we have to sacrifice something in order to be safe in the world, which was usually a man or a male animal. And what is sacrificed repeatedly in 19th century opera are women. And that yes. really has turned us round the corner from anything that the classical uh, figures have. And the only one who kind of comes across from the classical to us is Antigone. So I think there is a line into some of the, the, the 19th century operas. So we get to the 19th century we get to Puccini, we get to Madame Butterfly. I want to come back to your students and how they felt. Did they feel that they'd been witness to something? I don't think they would have articulated it in that way. And that's why in sort of not teaching about opera, but making opera part of people's exploration of cultural forms took us in three directions. We did a session with your singers. So we literally took them backstage and we brought them into the opera house and uh, we did exercises and we taught them the humming chorus because that's the most bizarre bit of opera <laughs> because you yeah. sing it with your mouth closed. Um, so they, they, they kind of experienced that. And then what they were so fascinated by was they looked into the costumes and they looked through the sort of staging things. And we then did actually do another one about your Tosca performance, and we had the costume designers come and talk us, to us about that. So they were very, very interested in all the visual stuff that they could do yeah. and something of it. But then we did a whole set of sessions with them about voices, and that mm -hmm. did begin to make them think because we did something about Farinelli, the castrato. We, did, we looked at um, ideas about the different voices in opera and how they gendered themselves etc and then that you could come back to this bringing these two things together what happens when what you're seeing on stage whether it's Tosca or Madame Butterfly or Violetta in La Traviata that it is the soprano singing this it's the sung death of women that's where uh, Catherine Clément comes in I I think we, we, she is this writer about this wonderful book where she's in a position similar to myself, which is, you know, I love opera. I get completely compelled. The students, you know, like the students, we come out. You know, I watched a bit of Madame a Butterfly this morning just as I was thinking about this, and I wept again, you know, on a, you know, on a, on a recording. There was I weeping again. Um, and 
we, we go through that, etc. But at the same time, we are um, witnessing uh, over and over again this particularly powerful killing by the plot of a woman. And so she tries to take us to say, you can't just be seduced by the music, you must look at the plot. So one way we could go now in this conversation is to look at something like the plot of Madame Butterfly and situate it a little bit more culturally in order to come back to ask this question, which I, to which I have no answer, is what is the Puccini effect? So I, I'm not looking to the students to say they can give me the data as to what it is. I I'm still think we're, we're exploring it. So let me just frame this. Um, Catherine Clément, who writes this book, The Opera or the Undoing of Women, asks us to look at stories and plots and words. Um, and she says, and this is a quote, all the women in opera die a death prepared for them by a slow plot woven by furtive fleeting heroes up to their glorious moment a sung death. O voices, sublime high clear voices, how you make one forget the words you sing. So she, she really goes into it and if you look at the, the, the um, the, the libretto, it's really fascinating. Now, the background to it is that Japan closed its borders to the world from the middle of the 16th century until 1854. And then uh, an American um, naval commander, Commodore Perry, made a landing in Nagasaki in 1854. And this was the first contact Japan had with the outside world for four, well, three, three centuries. So. This is a huge effect and of course the beginnings of a long lot of um, trade with Europe which creates in particularly France and England in the 19th century a craze for Japanese things, blue and white um, you know, ceramics, Japanese prints. Uh, this has a huge effect on art in all sorts of ways, these beautiful woodcuts that come and that's one whole kind of link between the visual arts and things. Now, Pierre Lotti was a French naval officer who also went on his travels to various places the French had gone. And one of those was Tahiti. He wrote a book about marrying a Tahitian in a native marriage in Tahiti. And then he went to Japan and he wrote this book called Madame Chrysanthème. And Madame Chrysanthème is the same as like Madame Butterfly. They mm -hmm. all have these, these, these particular names. And he describes a relationship with what's called a mousme, M-O-U-S-M-E, acute mousme. So these are not geishas, geishas, however you pronounce it. They are young women who are brokered by their families who need to somehow situate the girls because they can't afford to keep them. So there's a marriage broker and they are kind of brokered into these arranged marriages. But the divorce laws are very easy in Japan because they're not inscribed into the family book. Right. There's a whole culture of, you know, the, which, how you keep proper descent and proper property in Japan is one thing. So um, the two people who read these books, these, this book, are um, the artists of Paul Gauguin, who goes to Tahiti and does exactly what Lutti did himself, marries a 13-year-old in Tahiti, even though he's writing to his wife and has a 14-year-old daughter whom he describes his 13-year-old wife to. 
it's you know mind-blowingly com complex that one and right. then of course van gogh is a great lover of um, japan is completely japanized by reading pierre lotti and he paints uh, a picture called um, la mousme which many people will look at and just say it's a picture of a nice young french girl but it's actually called a mousme which is one of these 15 year olds that he yeah. fantasized if only he lived in japan he too wouldn't have to spend money at a brothel. He could buy a nice virginal wife, be safe from any of these, you know, sexually transmitted diseases, and then abandon her if he wanted. And the painting by Gauguin I wanted to share with you, which is a very famous painting he created of this young woman um, who was called Taha Hamana. In her terms, she was married. Her family handed her over. The certificate was signed. There was a French consulate and all the rest of it. And then he repeatedly paints her nude. He turns her into a kind of black version of Manet's Olympia. And there's a painting of her lying on a bed with beautiful embroidered um, or printed cloth underneath it and white sheets. And she's clearly terrified. She's lying on her front. She's, her face is terrified. And behind her is a strange, uh, dark, shrouded, dark-covered sort of figure which is part, possibly a sculpture, possibly a person, possibly a figment of her imagination as a image of what a night spirit that's terrifying her. And it's this very complicated image of um, kind of, I suppose, pedophilic uh, eroticism combined with um, kind of folkloric study about, look how quaint this person is, she's afraid of the spirits of the night. This is considered a highly prized, wonderful Gauguin painting, but behind it lies something which is troubling. Just yes. as this other picture by Van Gogh of a young woman, uh, she's actually a French woman, but dressed to look like and uh, a, a, a young 15-year-old. So in the visual arts, I can say, once I sit it situated in context, here is something that troubles me about what I've been asked to look at and accept under the name great artist Gauguin, great artist Van Gogh, and not question. Yeah. Now, is that the same as what Puccini mm. has done? Now, Puccini obviously saw a play based on Madame Chrysanthème, and we know it says he decided immediately to write an opera. Now, why did he need? The book is there, the story is there, a play has been made. So what did Puccini do to make it an opera? What is the operaticness? Does it repeat, in some sense, a kind of what we would consider a sort of semi-criminal um, misuse and abuse of vulnerable young women's bodies? Racist, because these Europeans go and say, we can play with their customs, marry their daughters, abandon them, and Porta Hachamana was given syphilis by Goga, and her son, I think, also had it, the son she had with him, who was never acknowledged by Goga. So all these things would give us real sort of moral scruples now. But is that what happens in Madame Butterfly? And what I was, why I was watching it this morning very much in, in this in mind, and two big scenes I was looking at. One is the, the sort of the staging of the love scene at the beginning. So the one I was watching is the Antony Bingella one for the Metropolitan. And... You have this huge, huge stage, all you know, very open and with these designs. And it's choreographed so that these two figures, both in white, 
Pinkerton and, and Butterfly are moving around there and you're very conscious that here is a fully grown adult man and they ask how old she is. She says, I'm Quindici and she's 15. And she's been forced into this sort of slightly perform not prostitution fully, but in this slightly dishonorable situation because her father fell out with the emperor and had to commit harikiri on his request. So they've fallen into poverty and everything about her is imagining that this is her rescue. And the way that the counterpoint of the He's burning with desire, so you have this real sense of masculine passion for this. But all the language, as in the Lottie and is and in the music, is that she's fragile. She's like a little doll. She's like a little yeah. flower. So, the the if you pause and think about it, you're already thinking this is there's a there's a kind of profound conflict between the. The, the, the tenor and the strength of him and the soldier and the young man full of his desire aroused and that you're watching him slowly bring her into the sense where she has to give herself. But she gives herself in, in love and hope to sex because that's all he wants, right? And that is going to be shown to us because she remains in her own moral universe, and he doesn't. to the the um, the end of the opera does she die for love no she kills herself because she's become a mother and there's a really it, you know it struck me because when we were talking about this before you you mentioned this particular singer yes and, and Sophie Dupre who who um, sang it uh, last time we did it at op uh, uh, did the production at Opera North um, yes, that was very interesting. So we, when when we were doing that, I mean, you know, it's very n nobody now can produce Madame Butterfly without trying to at least explore some of what you're talking about of the kind of the the the, the imperialism, uh, uh, but also the the sexual the sexual violence really uh, that that goes on in it and. Um, so we interviewed her to ask her how she felt about going out on stage night after night, uh, knowing that at the end of the evening she would be 
performing, but she would be killing herself ritually tonight in Leeds, tomorrow in Manchester, the day after in Nottingham. But she's going to be doing the same thing every time she goes out on stage. And how she felt about that and how, you know, whether that has a kind of cumulative erosion of some kind, you know, whether whether or, or exhaustion that comes from dying. And as you said, you know, five minutes ago, if you're a soprano at the top of your game, as she is, well, it might be Tosca, it might be Madame Butterfly, it might be any number of operas, but you're going to die at the end of the evening. And it was interesting. And she said, well, actually, you know, a lot of it is just about technique. It's about, you know, sometimes the death that you're staging, that you're p performing, the way it's staged uh, is quite exhausting. So throwing yourself off a turret or or whatever. Sometimes it's very tranquil, but uh, it, you have to have worked yourself up into a physical um, a physically uh, exhausting state in order to be able to perform that moment. So partly it's not about taking it personally and thinking, oh, here I am being killed again. It's more about how do I look after my voice? How do I look after my sound that's coming out of my body while I'm singing my death, as you put it? And it was that, I thought that was really interesting. But she said, but with Butterfly, and she's a mum, Anne-Sophie, she's a mother, and she said, with Butterfly, it's different because every night I get to a point in the two thirds, three quarters of the way through the opera where I say goodbye to my child before I go off and kill myself. And that's the moment I find really hard. That's the moment where I nearly lose it. And I thought that was very, very interesting because of course that is also a, a violence. There's a violence there, a violence of separation that has been written by a man, by Puccini, for her to have to do night after night after night. And that was, I thought that was interesting that she found that a more um, stressful moment than the, than the dying. Well, that, that's why I was so struck about it. And it, it raises these two slightly different aspects. One is what is asked of women who perform these roles, or what is asked, of, I mean, all of them is a massive thing, but in a sense, what is asked of them because they have to bring so much uh, emotional intensity to convince us and they, it's there in the music, so you can deal with it technically. But also this particular point that obviously not that many professionals in the, in the time past were mothers because life <coughs> of a high, high, um, highly successful opera singer makes life extremely difficult in those ways <coughs> and you have to practice and live a certain kind of life, not talk for certain numbers of <coughs> days before and between. But on this, this particular occasion, what certainly struck me was that Puccini has written this in such a way that this whole sequence with her child, the child is there, and in the Minghella performance they use a puppet, which is just right. so beautiful. But the child is, is there at the point from when she brings him out to Sharpless, and then you have the, 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 the humming chorus, and then she's, she's there, and they're sleeping through the night, and then he goes away, and when he's out of sight, then she decides to kill herself. But at the point at which he comes back in, and she wraps the, the, the band around his eyes, which is the one that the person committing suicide should wrap around their own eyes, yeah. so that their eyes are not there afterwards, um, He's off playing and, and blindfolded. And I struck me this time, which is that's, that's the Puccini power of that, this thing that she's a mother and she's killing herself because that's the only way to allow this child to, to have a life because 
Otherwise, she would be left. I mean, she would have to go back on the streets. All that would be terrifying. She could, you know, that you would try to avoid yourself that. But the idea when she reads out to die, uh, was it was better to die with honor than to die with dishonor or to whatever it is, you must mm -hmm. die honorably. That's what he's endowed her with. And so although we've got culturally over and over again, these operas sacrifice women to the great story, to the great drama, to the great, you know, beautiful music. There's a way in which they're interrupted. And I was thinking also, for instance, of a production I saw of Traviata with Nicola and Nathalie Desai, um, which was again the Metropolitan's production, where the, the stage set was one for like a great big white space with a clock. And then they had the character who plays the doctor at the end is constantly present, and he's time. And the final um, scene, or the, the introduction to the final scene, is this desolate figure of Violetta walking very slowly across the stage towards time and sitting down. Right. It's as if, you know, this whole question of, of her death. Uh, but it's it's in that sh that duration that I weep. So that's because I got I got kind of interested in when do you weep, at what do you weep, not just at the end, but at certain things which actually are given to you in time. And that's what I think um, the difference between cinematic violence and opera is that it creates the time in which the emotions and perhaps the meaning of these events is is sort of drawn out for you to sort of, that's where the witness is. You're not just a, a witness because you say, I saw it, I was there, I saw he killed her or she killed herself or whatever. It's not that kind of witness. It's something in which you have to endure being yes. present yes. with yes. it. And if you then close it down and say, oh, God, that was wonderful. Didn't she sing beautifully? Oh, she did it so much better than so-and-so. I've seen so many. I mean, a lot of opera buffs inure themselves to what they experience by this accumulated knowledge yeah. that you trade with each other um, about recordings and qualities of voices and, oh, she's a bit off tonight and all those, as opposed to allowing themselves to what I call self-fragilize. And if you fragilize, that's when you begin to ask these questions. So I'm not tutting at opera, saying, look, you keep killing women. I'm saying, I observe that this opera form arrives at that point, and what does it do with it? So let me give you one other uh, example that takes us right back to the beginning of opera. We think the first opera was called Daphne, although officially the one that survives is Eurydice. 1600, but in 1597 there is a trace that um, uh, da this opera Daphne was composed in, in the, the court of Mantua. I've written a lot about a statue by Bernini. Bernini is the greatest early 17th century Baroque sculptor. Very young man in his night in 1620s. He just does things with marble that astonish you. Right, and one of the most astonishing things, he's commissioned by um, Cardinal Scipioni to do a, an Apollo and Daphne. Now, the story of Apollo and Daphne is that Daphne has forsworn anything to do with men, doesn't want to have anything to do with men, does not want to be married. 
She's the daughter of, of a river god and an earth god. But the sun god Apollo spies her one day and burns with desire, because he's very hot. And he pursues her, and she calls out. Now, in various versions, she calls out to her father, or she calls out to her mother. And either mother or father responds by encasing her in bark and turning her into a laurel tree. And the laurel becomes then the wreath that you find on Apollo's head mm -hmm. and is given to the Olympic athletes as the crown for their victory. So Bernini creates a sculpture which is in the round and you can approach it in different ways. We think originally it was positioned in such a way you would come into the room and you would see the running feet of this god. He's a lovely sort of flowing figure. Uh, young man, very beautiful, uh, Apollonian beauty, beauty, not big and hefty, but a beautiful, elegant, who is running. And you see his garments flowing. You have a feeling of the, of the, the race, the speed at which he's going. Mm. And then as you move round, you begin to see uh, a female figure who curves beautifully up. Her arms are, are up to the left-hand side. Her face is turned to the right. And then as you come down, you begin to see that rising up from below, enclosing her body and having just reached her sort of her, her stomach, is this bark. And then her toes are turning into tree to, to, to branches and her fingers are becoming branches. And her head is turned and her mouth is open. So by one accord, we could say she's calling out, mother, father, save me. And then I thought to myself, what about the proposition that she's singing? Because Bernini was a great passionately follower of opera. You know, he went to all the Monteverdi operas, you know, was performing, was involved in it. And what would it be for me to read the sculpture in what I called a reparative mode, to read it not as another instance of my paranoia. There it is. Look what's happening. There's a story of rape. Rape is at the story, the heart of all these, um, you know, all Ovid's stories, all the metamorphoses. How did we get Europe? Zeus turned himself into a bull and raped Europe. You know, how Europa. All of the great stories are a dramatic story of patriarchy taking over the older culture that was women-centered. So this is a story of rape, but it's forestalled. It's forestalled because someone rescued her. But also, what would it be if that were sound? So I imagined the Daphne opera. Where would I be at the end of it in emotional terms and in sense compassionate and even moral and ethical terms had I had to listen to her call? Had I been centered emotionally in her even to be in her suffering rather than to have been aligned as the original entry point was to think, oh, look, there's Apollo. He's after his prey. He'll get her, right? But as we turn around, and when I first saw this sculpture in, in Rome, I walked into the room and immediately met Daphne, and I gasped, <gasps> right? I literally, and I, I, that's why I thought to myself, what is that? My body literally spoke back to this as a <gasps> which is like that intake of air that they've borrowed for the godfather they know about this <gasps> where you know michael leone is gasping and not things and then out would come the the lyrical truth 
of what culture has done to her. So that's what I was trying to balance out. The, the plot is pure, is complete rapishness, although he's frustrated. But if you read it reparatively, we draw from this culture something that's important for us to draw on to not be seduced by aesthetics into accepting the normalcy of it, but to feel absolutely anguished, as I do with the end of Martin Butterfly. This is a woman who loved her son, loved this man in trust, and ultimately realizes that she has to disappear for anybody to be happy. And it's not just that she's sacrificed by culture, that is for sure, but she is the subject of that act, and then we have had to confront that subjectivity. That's fantastic. That's really, really helpful for me. <laughs> I'm understanding. I'm understanding it. Uh, there was a phrase you used in the um, in the piece on Front Row last night, where you talked about interrupting the aesthetic gloss of opera, and how, you know it's such a hard thing to do, as you say. You know we. It's kind of the way that opera has become part of the culture is that people do accumulate productions. So you see Madame Butterfly five times over your, you know, over ten years and compare them and build up that accumulated knowledge of it. But how to get back to that gasp that you were just describing when you saw the when you saw the Daphne sculpture? How do we get back to the horror, really, of what we're being shown sometimes and and respect it as being unacceptable you know we we to look at the unacceptable through fresh eyes and say and and be able to um yes to recognize what we're looking at and not to get seduced by the music but to somehow work with the music to further reveal the horror that's really hard and makes opera really exciting i think i think what you were saying about time i think about a lot with opera that you know, I always use the analogy, I'm not, I don't think there is an opera that does this, but with opera, you could have somebody pull the trigger of a gun and before the bullet has hit its target, have three hours of music and narrative and story and complexity. And because opera can suspend that moment um, between the bullet leaving the, leaving the gun and finding its target, opera, opera lives there. It expands time and does, as you say, it, 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 has the potential to give the spectator or the witness the opportunity to look at what they're being shown and listen to what they're being sung uh, through numerous perspectives in order to in order to build a, a, a much more complex understanding of a situation yeah and I, I would I would add to that two things one is I mean that we are put in a morally ambivalent position purposely that's what it does and that's not ambivalence is not um, an awful thing because our world is not simple black and white so on the one hand I do endorse this sort of sense of naming the injuries naming the violence becoming aware that uh, which is what I was saying the other night on front row which is you know that culture is doing something that it shouldn't be doing in terms of race class and gender it diminishes the humanity of whole groups and opera, being part of culture, participates in that. So yeah. we could talk about the question that also many of the women in opera who die these tragic deaths and die these sung deaths are outsiders. 
you know, whether it's mm-hmm. Aida or Violetta mm-hmm. or Madame a Butterfly or Isolde, um, you know, or even, um, you know, Marie Stuart. I mean, you, you, there's always a supplementary reason for them to be so vulnerable. They're not protected by the traditional patriarchy, you know, the, the wife, the mother and things. So there's that and there, you know, Carmen, you know, we have over mm-hmm. and over again. So we've had two things recently which I thought we should just bring into it. Well, this is not so recently, but in the same year as the Catherine Clément book, uh, Sally Potter, the wonderful British film director, uh, directed one of her very first films called Thriller, which was 34 minutes, and what she did there was to open with the final magnificent sort of sounds, the anguish of La Bohème. You know, the painter calls out, Mimi! You know, this this wonderful, vast, dramatic moment when she has died, Mm. quietly, but then the music is very loud. And uh, with another person, uh, Mimi becomes an investigator and asks, who killed me? Did I die from tuberculosis? Or did opera kill me? Is it the culture of which opera is the instrumental symptom that I died? Why must I die? So that's a very strong statement, asking the culture, why do you glory Mm. in the deaths of women when traditionally sacrifice was never of the female? There's only one sacrifice in the, um, the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament for Christians, of a female animal. You don't kill the, the child bearers. So this is something funny in modern poetry, not funny, horrible in, in modern society, etc. But who killed Mimi on the one hand? But then on the other hand, um, in the, this kind of question of, of um, ambivalence around, um, in a sense, what, what the kind of music is doing, we are being asked not to sort of rescue opera or to justify opera, but to become conscious of the modes by which it deals with those stories in the relation in where those stories are also circulating in other forms like the visual arts or now cinema or literature. Um, and the one thing I, I kind of wanted to come back with it with the Sally Potter, which was that she gives a different voice to Mimi from the one that's scripted. So many of the women are scripted to have these beautiful, beautiful arias. Many of them are laments for their solitude or their abandonment. I mean, they actually are these, these extraordinary, like, like Tosca's Visi d'arte. Well, how did I get here? I lived for love and life. I've done everything right. How can fate be doing this to me? It's a, it's a beautiful kind of question of lament. And some of the most beautiful music in opera is a lament, Dido being the most famous one. But what happens when those, those women are given a voice? So Mimi, as Potter does, is a very feminist project to um, speak back to the culture. And then on the other hand, we've got um, the sort of feminist exploration that came up, what I was going to talk about, called Speaking the Body, which is from another a, a writer who's a good friend of Catherine Clément, uh, Hélène Sixou, who wrote a wonderful text called The Laugh of the Medusa, and therefore takes the most horrific image in Western yeah. Greek culture of the woman who was so beautiful, who 
betrayed her virginity as a priestess of Athena and was punished by things by becoming the ugliest and most terrifying <coughs> such that people looking at her, she would turn them to stone, petrify them, i.e. castrate them. Medusa, she says, you know, the Medusa is not ugly, she's laughing. So this is rather similar to my Daphne. She's not shrieking, she's singing in a certain kind of way. And in the right when she says that women have been exiled from their bodies. In general, in patriarchal culture, women are, their bodies are colonized by other people's stories, other people's rules, other people's legislation, I, patriarchal rules and regulations about their bodies. They're punished for deviations, they're constrained, they're confined. And if they protest, they're called hysterical. Mm. And hysterical is when you, um, your body speaks because what you want to say has been repressed. So she calls for us not to be hysterical in that sense, but to be hysterical in the sense that we do want our bodies to speak. We want to speak of our embodiment, of the imagination that goes with a specific body, of uh, um, thoughts that go with the body. And even though I'm, I've been very kind to opera in the way of saying, I think duration and witnessing spectatorship and living the emotions with the suffering figures who die at the end, we still have to come back to the sense, what would it be to tell our own stories, to tell different stories, or particularly for opera to face up to its colonial past, or it's, you know, who are the figures whom it kills? You know, they're always socially deprived. They're always vulnerable because they're foreigners or outsiders or other. And they, they suffer exquisitely and speak suffering powerfully, which can become both seductive and critical. But we don't have enough voices. So my project at this point is I'm wanting to commission operas, and that was the project we had in mind about going into the world and asking young people about their experience of the representation of violence, what do they see in their world, and what do they experience in their world, and could this generate stories that new librettists and new musicians could take up in order to write stories which use the power of opera to both hold the mirror up to society, but also it's this affecting. The thing is what I think art does is not to preach or be didactic or tell you what's what. That's a job for some other kind of forms. But it transforms, right? It finds a form to take something from here to there. And it transforms us because at the beginning we're indifferent, but when we're totally affected by what we've witnessed and fragilizing ourselves to actually experience it, we are then called upon to act in our world. So we don't have to say, don't ever produce Puccini's Madame Butterfly or Traviata or Aida or any of these operas again. We have to think about, in a sense, what historically this form has been, what it has, and how that has actually gone into cinema, not through <clears throat> godfather-type extreme violence, but actually through all those, what I was going to say, those long, boring French films, that you, those neorealist films, you think, what is happening here? And of course, nothing is happening. But they, um, as one of the great philosophers, Gilles Deleuze says, okay, they are actually making an 
image, what they call a time image, that's actually making time, duration, experienceable. So we're so used to thinking, why are they just standing around? Why do these French actors have no dramatic skills? They just talk very sort of lacadaisically to each other. But actually, you're made to sense the world they're in. And ironically, therefore, the least hot and the least violent and the least realistic cinema is much closer to this deep sense of yes. using time and using situations in the world. And so some of those neorealist films and you know, mostly European ones, etc., are, are actually, I would say, the inheritors of certain aspects of you know, operatic time. But we don't necessarily know that language unless we know the language of opera. We can't see that they, you know, because you asked this question to me a couple of you know, days ago about is it a matter of more realism and less aestheticism, you know, aesthetic staging. And I don't think it's real realistic stories, you know, everyday costume. But I, I do think it's a really interesting question to bring together people to look at cinema and its history to look at opera and its history and to put in the middle the sense of the fact we're living in this world where we witness these terrible violence and the Black Lives Matter movement now is, you know, calling for the capacity, calling on people to say they have no capacity to see this ever again because they've been made to see it. It's been normalized. It's a different form of aestheticization mm -hmm. that comes through television. And they're saying yeah. we must never ever see this again. We refuse to witness it again. We refuse to absorb the mourning and the grief that goes with it. We refuse to tolerate the inhumanity that it represents. But how would we transform people effectively so they desire humanity to be safe rather than to be excited by someone else dying? And I think that operas that we've been talking about hover on that point just you know that's why I say it's the ambivalence of it the moral ambivalence of it is what's interesting not for me to say oh it's violence and it kills women Clement was quite right it does pay attention but staging time the kind of position we're in and then discussion thinking with opera not just consuming and chalking it up. Thinking with opera. I think maybe that might be the title of the series. I think thinking with things, thinking with art, mm. thinking with cinema, thinking with opera, is not just thinking about it and judging or interpreting or consuming or approving, but really enabling these art forms to make the bridge between uh, the kind of the political world that we live in and the sort of cultural forms but it's what I, I can't kind of call it it's this sort of moral ethical aestheticness of our yeah. humanity that yeah. needs to be mobilized so if I could just end on one thing about one of the people um, that I've, I've thought with Adriana Cabarero who was an Italian feminist philosopher who thinks about um, violence through classical themes and literature and art uh, very closely. She's, all of her examples come from that because she says they're already thinking it. It's not I she applies sort of Plato and Aristotle to. She says these myths are already forms of thinking 
uh, not kind of rational thinking necessarily, but forms of thinking. Yeah. Um, and that question of uh, thinking with something in order to recognize that cultural forms are complex thinking, which involve the emotions and our selves and our affectivity and our ethics, as well as the possibilities of staging and you know performance. So we've looked at what does it do to the bodies who perform, what does it do to us who who witness, what is it this transact transaction between us through sound and music, the voice, the embodiment, and the story. And it's for that reason that opera, I think, really does offer itself to be decoded, to be yeah. unraveled and thought with, if we can, in a sense, rescue it like our art history from misassumptions about it as an art form because of the social classes and the cost involved in it so that it has been deprived people. So I think this idea of engaging young people who live a world of violence and difficulty and witness what's happening to into something that could feed into new operas um, would be still remains a very interesting project. You've been listening to a Thinking with Opera podcast produced by Opera North and the University of Leeds. For more information and further reading on the subjects discussed, you can download the accompanying notes. Visit operanorth.co.uk for more audio and video streaming and the latest news and performance details.